roaring cowboys you gotta treat tonight red garters all the dancing girl what a pretty sight come on you busy drinkers and blow away the foam red garters all the dancing girl you'll never see at home i'm feeling friendly and full of spice but don't grab the package or touch the merchandise hey all you men from leadville and you from laramie Red Garter's on a dancing girl, got him from Paris. Red Garter's on a dancing girl, what you came to see. Started off in Yonkers, dressed from head to toe. Then I dropped my bustle off south of Buffalo. Took off a dozen petticoats in Altoona pen. It got so hot in Illinois, dropped another ten. In Kansas, let my head on. You're listening to Sass Mouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Red Garters, released in 1954, is a rollicking burlesque of the Western genre. The picture spoofs the coat of the West and opens a space as large as the prairie sky for jokes about everything from the code of sexual double standards to the Hollywood production code, which had ruled the film industry for 20 years. Rosemary Clooney received top billing in the film and proves she had plenty of star power, but the Hollywood studio system was inhospitable to women who wanted to have a family as well as a career. Paramount Studio dropped her contract option in 1955 when she was pregnant. The studio's blatant case of pregnancy discrimination was just routine practice in Hollywood. Rosemary began entertaining audiences when she was only three years old, singing at school, church, and community functions in Maysville, Kentucky. She earned applause when she was only a knee-high. Before she learned how to read, Rosemary knew intuitively how to put over a song. And she recalls vividly an argument she had with her mother, Frances. Frances had her own dreams of making it in showbiz, but she didn't have the talent. Rosie didn't possess the vocabulary for how she knew how to sing a song, but she stood up to her mother, Frances, who corrected her, telling her daughter one day, don't leave those holes in a song. Little Rosie tried to explain that she was holding the bars. She was waiting for the beat. On one occasion, her father intervened, telling his wife that Rosie was right. A good singer paused to wait for the music. In her memoirs, Rosie articulates the frustration many kids feel when they're ignored by their parents. Maybe that was one reason that drove her to seek applause. Rosie recalled an incident that occurred when she was five and her sister Betty was two. They were left alone in the house one day and played dress-up with their aunt's stage clothes. Their mother's sister, Anne, had been a nightclub singer in Lexington before she took an overdose after a bad breakup. After they were dressed in long gowns, Rosie told her sister they were going to go down to the river and take a journey by boat. When they got there, Betty accidentally slipped and fell into the Ohio River and surely would have drowned had Rosie not found the strength to pull her baby sister from the swift current. As the oldest child, Rosie had too much responsibility too soon. Now, their mother, Frances, didn't realize her dreams for showbiz, but she found an outlet for travel and independence through work. During the Depression, Frances traveled as a fashion buyer for the learner shops. 
Rosie, Betty, and their younger brother, Nikki, lived with their maternal grandmother, Gilfoyle, who had already raised a dozen of her own children. Frances sent home $5 a week. Like many households during the Depression, money was tight. And sometimes when the $5 didn't show up on time, Rosie's Uncle George hawked something to buy a sack of potatoes and onions. Frances's siblings eventually intervened, and they argued that their mother was too old to keep looking after her kids, and it was high time she raised her own. Frances's marriage to Rosie's father ran hot and cold. They were often separated. When they were on the outs, they took up with other people. After one split, Fran packed her bags. She announced she was following her heart and running off to California with some new man. She was taking Nikki with her. After years of complaining that her husband was a deadbeat and unreliable, suddenly he was responsible enough to take care of the girls. Rosie and Betty wouldn't see their mother and Nikki again for four years. By this point, the war was on. Their father quit drinking, took a job in a defense plant in Cincinnati, and looked after the girls. But the stability was short-lived. As soon as the war ended, their father accepted an invitation for drinks after work to celebrate, and that was it. He took all the war bonds that he had saved uh, throughout the war and went off on a binge. Rosie was 16. Betty was only 13. They had no money. They gathered the soda bottles around the house and cashed them in to buy food. At the end of the rope, Betty came up with a solution. The local radio station was holding auditions. Rosie admitted she never would have been bold enough. They had to plan wisely for this audition. If they timed it right, they could return before five and travel on public transit on the student fare. But if they stayed in town too long, they'd be stranded without car fare. But they decided to go for it. Rosie and Betty didn't have their own music with them, but they harmonized easily after years of practice. They performed three songs. Men in the station asked them to audition again for another group of men in the building. By the time they were through with the rounds, they had a contract to work for $20 each every week. But they had also missed the window to get home for a nickel. Betty was bold once more and asked the radio producer for an advance on their first paycheck. Now that they were employed, Rosie reached out to their Aunt Jean. They had their own wages and could pay their own way, but they still needed somewhere to live. The Clooney sisters, as they were professionally billed, signed with the station WLW in Cincinnati in April 1945, one month before Rosemary's 17th birthday. After school, the girls went directly to the studio and sang in their school uniforms. From there, they joined a local band leader for local gigs. The Clooney sisters made regular appearances on radio and sang in hotels and dance halls. They worked with Barney Rapp, the same band leader who discovered Doris Day. As local celebrities in Cincinnati, they caught the attention of a larger fish in the music food chain. Tony Pastor had been a member of Artie Shaw's band before he struck out with his own orchestra. Pastor needed a singer. He signed the Clooney sisters for $250 a week, and they would open in Atlantic City. The girls boarded the train with their Uncle George, who was fresh out of the service and agreed to work as their chaperone and business manager. The girls took with them matching wardrobes whipped up by Grandma Gilfoyle and plenty of ambition to make good. 
Rosie and Betty didn't have an older woman around to explain things to them about makeup or styling themselves for the stage. They had to figure that out for themselves, and sometimes with disastrous results, such as the time when Rosie put on too much mascara and sealed her eyelids shut. The Clooney sisters were popular with audiences and critics. Rosie initially had stage fright when they opened in Atlantic City to a crowd of 3,000, but she powered through. They were always on the road, often receiving higher fees for a one-night engagement with Tony Pastor than in extended runs. The Clooney sisters learned to never unpack unless they were staying anywhere a week. It just took too much time. Rosie recalled one seven-day stretch where the band played Syracuse, three different small towns across Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Their tour bus often clocked over 500 miles a day, even though the union regulations stipulated a 300-mile limit per day. When they crossed the country to play dates in California for the first time, Rosie instantly fell in love with the climate. The air felt different, lighter somehow. She and Betty ran into June Christie, who was the girl singer with the Stan Kenton band. June wore a suede trench coat, which the teenagers thought was the height of Hollywood style. Rosie was singled out by critics. One called her the closest thing to Ella Fitzgerald. After that, she unconsciously started impersonating Fitzgerald's style until one night her Uncle George pointed it out in a sarcastic manner. Rosie began to study other singers. And she was in awe of Ella Fitzgerald even before she watched her perform live at a nightclub in New York City. Rosie noted that if she had never before believed in God, I believed when I listened to her sing. Listening to Frank Sinatra taught Rosie a lot. Sure, Frank could get six bars from one breath, but Rosie decided breath technique was more of a trick than anything else. What she admired most about Sinatra was the way he enunciated every word with perfect clarity. And that was what she was keen to do as a professional. Later, when she developed a close professional and personal relationship or friendship with Bing Crosby, she realized she was able to do it because she didn't appear to be in awe of him. That would have never worked with Bing. She was relaxed and natural, which is something most other people couldn't do with Crosby, her husband-to-be included. Sinatra once asked Rosie about it, how she could act like Bing wasn't a god to her. Rosie replied, I just pretend he isn't Bing. From Billie Holiday, she learned to admire her fortitude as a performer, and Billie noted that they were always saying she was making a comeback, but no one ever said where she had been. Rosie also admired her sister, Betty. Betty had an instant rapport with an audience on stage, and Betty also had a boldness Rosie envied. Once, when they were kids, Betty beat up a boy who had been bullying their little brother, Nicky. Later, when the boy's parents, outraged, came to the door, Betty was unflappable. She said to her brother and sister, my, my, look what we have here, a reception committee as if she was Little Caesar, Scarface, or the public enemy. Betty never let anyone push her around. Once, when they were singing with the band, one of Betty's falsies popped out of her gown and landed on stage. A boy reached out and grabbed Betty's ankle. 
Betty pulled her foot away and drove her spike heel through the boy's hand until he let go. And yet she never missed a note. She kept singing the whole time. Their aunt, Olivette, used to say, Betty had all the guts and Rosie had all the talent. After three years fronting Tony Pastor's band, the Clooney sisters came to the end of the road. In her first memoir, Rosie explained that Betty decided she wanted to go back home and enjoy being a normal teenager before it was too late. She put a good spin on what really happened. She's more honest about it in her second memoir. Gradually, Rosie had been singled out for praise and began recording songs on her own more and more, and then decided to go out on her own. Rosie was a contestant on Arthur Godfrey's talent show, which was a top 10 program on television. One of the other singers that night was Anthony Dominic Benedetto, who performed under under the name Joe Barry. Rosie won the contest with her rendition of Golden Earrings. During her long career, Rosie would never score another win against the boy. She was beaten many times at the Grammys by the singer who became known as Tony Bennett. Joe Shribman, who was the nephew of Al Shribman, the man who bankrolled many large um, band acts, including Tony Pastor, wanted to represent Rosie. He negotiated a deal for her as a solo artist with Columbia Records. Uncle George called for a meeting in Shribman's office. He didn't want to be sacked by her new agent. He wanted to hear it directly from his niece. She wouldn't have been able to go on tour or have any of the opportunities she had without him or Betty, but now she wanted to go out on her own and leave them behind. Rosie said the word, yes. Betty returned to Cincinnati and eventually went back to work at WLW radio station. Betty never uttered a bad word to the press about the Clooney sisters' breakup. Rosie embarked on her solo career. She signed a contract on her 21st birthday. At first, she slept on Shribman's couch. Then she moved into a tiny flat with a Murphy bed on 57th Street. Rosie sang in local clubs in New York and played out of town. She might get $250 a night on tour, but she also had to pay her own expenses and had to pay her pianist. Especially because the bookings weren't steady, money was tight. For one TV appearance, she was paid with 100 pounds of food from the sponsor, not exactly what she needed to keep the lights on. The upkeep on a stage wardrobe was expensive and time-consuming. Rosie had known for years that she had what it took to make a living as a singer. Early reviews from one critic praised her for the almost cello-like evenness of her voice. Another said there was a cinnamon flavor to her voice, and another called her singing robust and fresh. Director Mike Nichols, years later, once said Rosemary sings like Spencer Tracy acts. Shribman rang one day and broke some news in an almost reverential tone. Frank Sinatra wanted to make a record. Sinatra was brusque when Rosie met him. Rosie had been chosen only after Dinah Shore turned him down, and now he had something to prove. He simply asked Columbia to give him their most recent female hire, Peachtree Street. The song they recorded together in 1950 was not a hit. 
but Rosemary respected his talent. He was the only instrument in the band with words, she noted. Frank was all about the words, and so was she. As her career progressed, Rosie was making connections. After an appearance on Tallulah Bankhead's The Big Show, she became friends with Marlena Dietrich. The night she appeared on the broadcast, Rosie watched backstage as a woman entered with a long, shapeless raincoat, high rain boots, and a big scarf over her head. Rosie gawped at the woman's unfashionable outerwear until the stranger peeled off the functional articles and emerged in perfect gold chiffon, a perfectly coiffed hairdo, and stilettos. Marlena had the equipment, and she knew how to protect it. Marlena was 50 years old at the time, and she was a constant source of advice and contacts for Rosemary throughout their long friendship. Marlena, for example, advised Rosie to always wear lingerie that matched her skin tone and never let it show in public. Rosie wondered how to do this since the stores only sold underwear in white, pink, and black. Marlena explained that she soaked her white undergarments in tea until they turned the right shade. Then she laundered them um, separately. Later, when Rosie signed a contract with Paramount, she went with a stack of letters of introduction from Marlena for everyone from Edith Head to crew members. And years after that, when Rosie had trouble with insomnia on the road, Marlena hooked her up with hypnotiques. They were French sleep aid suppositories. Marlena said they were great because you couldn't overdose on them. You would simply fall asleep before you inserted too many. After Marlena died, Rosie wondered why her famously bisexual friend had never made a pass. Maria Riva replied, My mother was a perfect gentleman. Rosie's manager sent her up with a friend, this woman Jacqueline Sherman, a socialite who had been one of the quiz kids. Jackie had money and connections. She was friends with Brando, had played golf with Clark Gable. She invited Rosie to share her flat in the Hampshire house. One night, Rosie and Jackie were at home with blue gentian applied to their faces as a treatment for the ringworm they picked up from Jackie's cats. Marlon Brando suddenly knocked on the door. Rosie dashed into the bathroom to wash her face. Rosie frequently invited Betty to visit. One night, the sisters were out on the town when Sinatra sidled up to their table. He took one look at Betty and turned it on. He said in a low voice, I don't believe we've met. Behind them, Tommy Dorsey was leading his band. Sinatra chatted with Betty. They made small talk. Betty said she would have loved to have seen him when he was singing with Dorsey years ago. Sinatra simply turned around and had a word with Tommy Dorsey, and then he started singing. He ignored every other woman in the room and sang to Betty. They went out together for the next three nights. On the last night, Rosie tagged along for part of it. For years after that, even when Betty was no longer single and had been married, Sinatra sent a large bottle of arpege to Betty each Christmas. At the start of her career, Rosie held a single-minded focus on her career goals. She felt every romance was not built to last. One of the musicians in Tony Pastor's band had asked her to run off and get married. She enjoyed their steamy relationship, but something held her back and kept her from making the rash decision to go get hitched. 
She was convinced it was the wrong move when she went off for a side gig and was swept off into a brief fling with another man. Rosie was sensible. If she could be so easily distracted by another man, she reasoned, then it couldn't be true love. She wasn't going to sacrifice her dreams to get married. Jose Ferrer first entered Rosie's orbit with a sign. When she was still singing with for Tony Pastor and visited New York, they went to Joe Shribman's office for a meeting. The girls saw a sign for Jose Ferrer Productions located on the same floor as Shribman's office. Sometimes the universe sends you signs, and sometimes it sends literal signs. Then in 1950, Rosie had a guest spot on a TV variety show. She had her younger sister Gail with her. She noticed another guest was paying attention to her. Jose Ferrer, who went by Joe, was interested in her, but was initially put off because he thought Gail was her daughter. The TV show host, Bob Lewis, had tickets to see Joe star on Broadway. He neglected to mention to Rosie that Joe had given him the tickets specifically because he wanted to see Rosie backstage. The production was 20th Century. Joe played Oscar Jaffe next to Gloria Swanson's Lily Garland in the Ben Hecht Charles MacArthur classic screwball comedy. Rosie had a few moments with Gloria Swanson backstage, but didn't get to see Joe. He didn't give up that easily. They met for dinner. Rosie was immediately swept away. Born to an aristocratic family in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Joe spoke seven languages, was well-read, and traveled. He had an Ivy League education from Princeton and Columbia. He had been a star on Broadway and in popular hits such as Damon Runyon's A Slight Case of Murder and Brother Rat, and he also did Shakespeare. By the time Rosie met him, Joe had won a Tony and an Oscar for his role as Cyrano de Bergerac. He was one of the most respected actors in the world. He believed that with concentration, one could learn anything in 15 minutes. He was the type of man who made the world bigger for Rosie. She loved to listen to him, and she learned a lot. The problem was, he had married twice, first to actress Uta Hagen, and then to Phyllis Hill, who was still legally his wife, although they were separated. So Rosie initially kept her romance with Joe private. Meanwhile, her career took off. Mitch Miller joined her record label as an executive producer. Miller trained as a classical musician before he branched out into popular music, and his background gave him the experience in the industry where he became known as a hit maker. He knew how to develop singers, he knew how to get the best sound from them, and he knew how to match their style to the right sound. He had worked with Sinatra and Tony Bennett, who were also under contract with Columbia. Mitch Miller identified Rosie's talents. He said she was a natural-born singer. He didn't have to teach her techniques like how to breathe. He was there, he explained to her, to show her what to do with what she had. He said, nobody has it, that curvaceous sound you have. The Svengali of singers had Rosie hooked. Mitch bumped up Rosie's contract royalties from 3% to 5%. In January 1951, she recorded Beautiful Brown Eyes with him. It was a hit, but not as big as the one that would follow. Mitch Miller lined up a song written by William Soroyan and Ross Bagdasarian, which they had written 
after a cross-country drive. The song celebrated the fruitful American landscape. Mitch envisioned a riff on Armenian folk songs. He wanted a harpsichord to lead the sound. Rosie instantly hated the song. She thought it was vapid and nothing more than a stupid novelty tune. She didn't want to put on an accent. Since she worked so hard to enunciate the lyrics, she was turned off by having to use an accent. She complained about it one night at dinner with Joe. He disagreed with her for the reading of the song and explained that it actually had roots going back to the Renaissance and a Christopher Marlowe play where a character invites another to his house to sample plums, almonds, figs, and dates. Rosie saw things in a new light. Plus, Mitch Miller told her if she didn't show up for the recording, she'd be out of a job. Miller coaxed Rosie into the spirit of the song. He asked her to imagine herself in a house without a painted porch, lots of kids around, a man coming by. Then he stepped up the fantasy. Imagine he's the man you want to marry, which helped to release the underlying sexiness of the lyrics. Come on to my house was recorded. And after the song was released, Rosie had a singing engagement in Miami. She took her friend and roommate Jackie along. It wasn't played on any of the radio stations down there, so Rosie figured she was right and it was just a corny novelty song lost in the shuffle. When they returned to Manhattan, they were in a taxi on their way to the Hampshire house. Rosie was stirred by a familiar voice. Record shops all along Broadway blasted Come On to My House. She jumped out of the taxi and entered a shop in a daze. She had the biggest hit in the country. It was on full blast everywhere. Rosie had already agreed to play a stint in Vegas. Although they had booked her at a lower rate and Rosie was annoyed, it did open doors. One night backstage before a performance, she learned there was a movie scout in the audience. After the performance, Rosie signed a contract with Paramount and glided into Hollywood with a hit record and a stack of letters from Marlena Dietrich. Rosie received the star treatment from day one. By the time Rosemary Clooney walked on the Paramount lot, she had already conquered the top of the hit parade charts and proved herself on the nightclub circuit in addition to making popular appearances in radio and television. In Paramount, she had her choice of interiors for a lavish dressing room outfitted in blonde wood with a wet bar and a curtain alcove with a bed. She was living in the Beverly Hills Hotel while she waited for Judy Garland to vacate her home on Maple Drive so she could move in. With Shribman, her manager in tow, Rosie went to the furrier recommended by her dear friend Jackie and purchased her first mink coat. Nothing says you've arrived in Hollywood like your first mink. When Shribman looked at the $8,000 price tag, he was aghast and merely asked, is it warm? As if that's what a mink coat is for. During production of her second picture, Here Come the Girls, Rosie met Dante DiPaolo, who was hired as her dance coach and soon played a more important role in Rosie's life. He gave her the pet name Rosella. They spent time together offset, which developed into a whirlwind romance. At the end of a day's shoot, he would drop by her dressing room. Rosie would tell him to lock the door. She continued seeing Dante until the day before she married Joe Ferrer. 
In May 1953, Rosie started working on her third picture, Red Garters. Originally, Mitch Lyson was assigned to direct the picture. He was replaced two weeks into production. None of the footage he shot remains. If only the studio had trusted Lyson's lavish aesthetic and psychological insights. Remember, he was the man who made the mink skirt for Ginger Rogers to wear in a masterpiece about a woman's sexual frustration, Lady in the Dark. Had Lyson remained on the picture, it might have gone off like a rocket instead of a cap gun. George Marshall wasn't a bad choice to replace Lyson. It's been estimated that Marshall made more than 400 films. Marshall had a mint pedigree in comedy as an actor, stuntman, gagman, writer, and director. According to an LA Times story, which celebrated his 36th year in the business in 1949, Marshall was known in Hollywood as Mr. Money because studios always got their money back with interest. Marshall began working in Hollywood in 1912 after he dropped out of college. He traveled from Chicago to visit his mother who was living in California and decided that he would have a bit of fun by working in the picture business. He chipped in and purchased a dress suit with Frank Lloyd and William Cedar, who both later became directors as well. The three men shared the suit to work as an extra in, in the film studios. During Marshall's long career, he worked with Max Sennett, Hal Roach, Laurel and Hardy, W.C. Fields, Bob Hope, Lucille Ball, and Jerry Lewis. Marshall's triumph was Destry Rides Again in 1939, a Western lampoon that was a huge hit and revived Marlena's career. After he made Ghostbreakers, which was a comedic riff on horror pictures, Paramount rewarded Marshall for the hit with a long-term contract. Frank Tashlin, the screenwriter on Red Garters, also boasted serious comedic bona fides. Tashlin started out making Looney Tunes and Mary Melody's animated pictures. He did cartoons featuring Porky Pig, Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse, and two with Bugs Bunny. Then he moved to write and direct live-action pictures. Tashlin wrote the script for The Pale Face with Bob Hope and Jane Russell in 1948, which he imagined as a spoof of the classic Western The Virginian with Gary Cooper. Tashlin had been disappointed with how The Pale Face turned out and vowed to direct his own pictures. Tashlin went on to direct six pictures with Jerry Lewis, along with some of the best comedies produced at the end of the studio system, including Will's success Spoil Rock Hunter and The Girl Can't Help It. As Peter Bogdanovich noted, Tashlin transferred the outrageous cartoon humor to his live-action pictures. Red Garters was inspired by a Time magazine article on the western Yellow Sky, starring Gregory Peck from 1948. The magazine photographer used an angle to capture the empty buildings behind the false fronts for the town's setting. And that set design for Red Garters looks like a cartoon where a matte yellow sky matches the ground, which changes to a matte technicolor blue in the evening. The sets are like the pictures from Time magazine. There are more like cardboard cutouts, a suggestion of a set. Rosemary described the backdrop as minimalist, like something you'd see in a Greek chorus done on stage. Red Garters was meant from the start to showcase Rosemary's talent. 
She was so popular on the music charts, one reporter noted that her recordings outsold Nickel Coffee. She had an abundance of gifts. She's the heart of Red Garters, the moral center, and her songs transcend the plot. Rosie's number, Bad News, is better than most of the songs on the charts at the time. And the music is a standout smooth jazz instead of the rest of the Western cabaret numbers in the picture. Bad News is the kind of classic record you listen to late at night or after a breakup. Rosie's voice is glamorous and mellow. It fills the air like exhaled plumes of cigarette smoke. a guy, he took a train, why did he go, who can explain, it was a great love story, now it's just bad news. Jack Carson, who plays her love interest in Red Garters, was often cast in a supporting role, like a pair of water wings, to keep new starlets afloat. Carson did wonders for Jane Wyman, Joan Leslie, and Doris Day when they launched their film careers. But if I'm honest, Rosemary doesn't seem to need him. Your eyes always land on Rosie without any help from Carson. Part of it's from her performance, where she plays a sass-mouthed dame surrounded by a bunch of macho, gun-toting lunkheads. Rosie is the everywoman when she questions the logic of sexual double standards. She wants Jack Carson to explain the ambivalent labels men put on women. So your love for me makes me a lady? Rosie's character calls time on the way men get to judge women. And more than once, she's the voice of reason that averts disaster from senseless violence. Rosie is also dressed magnificently in corsets, bustiers, bustles, and crop tailor jackets of the era from Edith Head. The pink and red ensemble for Rosie's saloon striptease is a showstopper, as well as the black velvet gown she wears for bad news. Rosie collaborated with Edith Head for decades for both her professional and private wardrobe. And after Edith had retired in the 1980s, Rosie phoned her for a favor to design a costume for her stepdaughter, Debbie Boone. When Edith picked up the phone and wisecracked, what, are you pregnant again? Rosie got on well with Guy Mitchell, the singing cowboy, who isn't half as pretty as his horse in this picture. I get the sense that Yvonne Wood, who did the costumes for the men, took one look at Guy's horse and said, I'm going to use that color palette for the cowboy. Guy wears fawn beige from head to toe. An article in Modern Screen Magazine explains how Joanne Gilbert got the part in Red Garters. Joanne had worked for a model for about six months when she decided to jumpstart a career in showbiz. She asked her father, Ray Gilbert, an Oscar-winning songwriter, to write for her. Joanne arranged to sing during a benefit at the Macombo. She appeared in drag with a top hat, tuxedo, and long pants. Someone in the audience, no doubt by plan, approached Joanne with a pair of scissors. He cut the trouser legs off, which revealed Joanne's stunning pins. Apparently, her legs were on par with Dietrich's, and that led to her to getting cast in the picture. The production had its share of calamity. It was supposed to be shot in 3D, but that didn't pan out. 
Rosie didn't get along with Jean Barry, who plays Moreno in the picture. He dropped her when he carried her in one scene, upstaged her in others, she felt. Jean Barry injured his ankle, and one of the wardrobe women got her fingers stuck in a sewing machine. During the wrap party, director George Marshall eyed the barbecue with suspicion and refused to eat the meat until he saw Rosemary's Great Dane cuddles in fine form. Paramount held the preview in Dallas, which seems like an odd choice. Do you really want to open a picture that pokes funds at Cowboys in Texas? The problem with Red Garters is Paramount got cold feet. It should have been bolder with the jokes about the Code of the West and the production code. Rosie has a running gag in the picture where she waits for couples to stop kissing. And the couples kiss much longer on screen than the Hollywood production code allowed. But in the end, the Code of the West, with its violence and its double standards and its production code, isn't replaced with something subversively egalitarian. It's replaced, they say, by law and order, which is really the status quo under a new name. The picture wasn't a hit at the box office, but it certainly had potential to be a standout satire. Once the picture wrapped, Rosie hurried to meet Joe Ferrer in Dallas, where he was starring on stage in Kiss Me Kate. One morning, they snuck across state lines to a small town in Oklahoma to get married. Less than three days after the ceremony, Rosie described the way she felt on her wedding day. She told a reporter from Photoplay magazine, I felt detached, like a goldfish floating around on the outside of the fishbowl, looking in at the people. More than 40 years later, when she was writing her second autobiography, Rosie returned to that feeling of detachment to describe the traumatic experience she had with addiction and a nervous breakdown. Upon reflection, she identified the role that detachment had played in her life. She recalled that she had this reputation for being shy, unlike her more outspoken sister, Betty. But from a distance, Rosie saw clearly that her detachment was something she adopted because it was easier and safer to manage than her anger. Rosie's breakdown was decades in the making. It was a foregone conclusion. It's what happens when girls are encouraged to go go along and get along, to be nice, a good girl, be the strong one, be a trooper, a people pleaser, the marrying kind. Rosie believed that if she was the perfect wife and mother who could do it all, then her husband wouldn't cheat and she would be happy. She kept her rage in little bottles, and each pill she took was a way of swallowing her feelings. Unfortunately, Joe cheated before their honeymoon and continued to do so throughout their marriage. And this increasingly left Rosie feeling insecure and unhinged. While they were on their honeymoon in France, Joe told a friend in her hearing distance in great detail about a backstage fling he had just had. Rosie was devastated. When she tried to talk about it, Joe's response was he wasn't about to change and maybe the marriage was a mistake. Maybe she should go back home. But Rosie made up her mind that she would change him. She would work hard at her career and raising her family. At first, Rosie really thought she could do it all. During her pregnancies, she was able to sing still for Columbia. She recorded songs. She had a lucrative deal with television. Rosie was inspired by Lucille Ball and shot a TV show around her pregnancy. 
uh, which was recorded on film, with the usual camouflage from sets and camera angles. When her third child was born prematurely, TV executives said they were glad that the baby came early and didn't delay the show. Two weeks after giving birth, Rosie was back at work. Yet by 1955, Paramount dropped her contract and so did television because of her pregnancies. That meant a grueling schedule touring for live shows. After her marriage to Joe was over and she had the breakdown and then recovered with years of therapy, she was in her car one day when she saw Dante DiPaolo at a traffic stop. They reunited. 20 years after they reconnected, they officially wed. Rosemary's brother Nick told her once that she slew all the dragons. He thanked her for it because she fought the monsters. Her, his life was bigger than what it could have been. She showed him the way to reach for something more. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. This for Remembrance, the autobiography of Rosemary Clooney, an Irish-American singer, by Rosemary Clooney with Raymond Strait, published in 1977. Girl Singer, an autobiography by Rosemary Clooney with Joan Barthel, published in 1999. Mitchell Lyson, Hollywood Director by David Chirichetti, published in 1995. Edith Head, The 50-Year Career of Hollywood's Greatest Costume Designer by Jay Jorgensen, published in 2010. Who the Devil Made It, Conversations by Legendary Film Directors by Peter Bogdanovich, uh, published in 1997. Thanks for listening. Men. A man is stubborn as a mule. He don't learn half enough in school. The only thing that drives him is his ego. A woman likes to criticize. She wants to dominate the guys. If she were smart, she'd be a man's amigo. Man and woman, day and night. They always try to make the other see the light.